Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jyothi Dugar, the National Institutes of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. In some ways, this is a special edition of Ask the CIO. We're, you're not quite a CIO, which is okay, but we're going to talk cybersecurity a little bit. But we're also going to talk a lot about recruitment of women and girls into the cybersecurity field. So we're, we're going to have a broad conversation. First, Jyothi, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Let's discuss your role at NIH's clinical centers and what's it like to be a CISO? How'd you get to that point in your career to become a CISO? It's a very interesting path. I don't think there is a right path or a wrong path or even a set path unlike other professions. My path here was mainly because of a really, really good and observing supervisor that I had in a different company who had noticed that I had different kinds of skills, technical, personal skills, organizational skills, and just thought, hey, you know, why don't you get into security? And this was about 15 years ago when security wasn't as well known as it is now. Um, so at, at that time, I thought, hey, well, what is the security field? And uh, let me do some research on it. And what I found, I was kind of unsure whether to go in this direction or not, but I took the uh, the leap and got into it, and I am so glad I did that. Um, I learned at, in my way as I, as I went from different people I was working for, as well as just doing my own research on things and getting into it, just having that mindset of, of just wanting to do more and, and, and find out more about this, this particular role. So I worked a lot with DOD. I've been working with DOD since ninth grade, and I had a, a ISSO information security officer um, position there for several years. And then I, from there, um, since I had so much DOD work, I thought, let me just jump to the other side and see how other parts of the government function. So I was lucky enough to get this particular position as the security officer for the clinical center of NIH, which I didn't know at the time, but I soon learned that the they are the largest biomedical research hospital in the country, which is a great place to be, very nurturing people. We are a full-fledged hospital, everything that a normal hospital has. Um, and I didn't even realize healthcare cybersecurity was a specialized field. Um, so I've been learning a lot on this job, and I and I absolutely love it. And a huge issue, healthcare cybersecurity. It's growing, lots of lots of people looking into it. Before we go down that path, though, what is your background? You graduated college with what? With a degree in? Electrical engineering. Electrical engineering. You made your parents happy. You, you became an engineer. I wanted to be a doctor, but the only reason I wanted to be a doctor was to help people. So now I feel like I'm doing both. I'm helping people and also um, doing something I'm good at, which is... And you spent time working as an electrical engineer for several years before moving to the security field? Or, or, was, I... or did you kind of, as you got into the workforce after college, you got into the IT field and that led you down this path towards security. Yes, so I actually worked for Ernst & Young. Um, I traveled all around the world, met all different kinds of people, doing various different things. I did system administration, network administration, project management. I learned everything on the job. I didn't know any of this in, in college. But majoring in electrical engineering did set me on a path of just being able to learn quickly and being able to apply those concepts in, in any other field that, that got me there. I feel like if I had majored in a different different subject, it might not have given me the mindset to to just learn quickly and, and learn different things and be able to put two and two together. So yeah, so, so that's an interesting background too. So I did several years of um, consulting work and then I got into project management and then that led me to cybersecurity um, and here I am. What I hear a lot of times about engineers who come into the computer world or the IT space is it teaches you how to think, how to how to solve the problem. And so much of IT is solving the problem. Okay, if this do, didn't work, 
that may work. And if, if that doesn't make sense, what does make sense? And, and I think that's the why there, you see so many engineers who end up in the IT world as well. Do you find that's the truth for you as well? Yes. So I think security engineering is actually, um, it's, it's there in the bigger companies now like Netflix or Google. Um, it's slowly coming to the government world where CISOs are benefiting from having a engineering experience you know they're not just compliance based anymore or they really can't be compliance based anymore versus until now i've seen several CISOs come into their jobs and their sole area of expertise was just um meeting the compliance for for fisma or for other government regulations and now it, it's not that's not enough anymore that's part of your job but i think that's very minimal now it's it's you really need to know how to engineer your whole security program um, and your it program to to meet the needs of of the demands you're one of a handful of women CISOs in the federal government. Uh, it's interesting to see the change that's happened, maybe over the last three to five years, where you've seen more and more women get into the cybersecurity world, but more and more kind of rise to the level of CISO. And maybe that's just natural evolution where people, you start you start like you did as an information security officer, and then you take the next step and the next step. But maybe talk a little bit about that challenge of of one, being a woman in a CISO's role, if there is any different challenge than being a man in a CISO's role. And, and then two, we can talk kind of the broader of, of the interest of getting more women into cybersecurity. But let's talk about your role initially. As a woman, to get into this as a role, one, you have to ask for it, um, which, which I've noticed is a little different than most males, how they approach it. I did ask for my role when I came in as ISSO. I said, hey, I'm really not an ISSO. I'm really in the position of a CISO, um, and I have ISSOs working for me, and I made that happen. I wrote a, a proposal to my boss, the CIO, um, and I said, this is what I envision for security for my organization. This is how it should be according to best practices, um, and this is what's ideal for the organization. So sometimes, as a woman, I've, I've noticed most women don't tend to ask for what they want or even how things should be just in terms of role perspectives, or they might feel like they're not qualified enough. All the psychological aspects that go into uh, just being a female versus a male. You know, as a male, I've noticed people, uh, they, they tend to go for it whether they feel like they're fit for uh, that position or not. It includes being uh, interviews as well. Was your boss surprised when you said, hey, I have a proposal for you and it's about giving me a promotion? <laughs> what was what was uh, their reaction? It took them some time to process that. <laughs> <laughs> very, very politically, nice job. You know. <laughs> but he made it happen because um, right. I, I, this was no in, in no way... Uh, when I wrote that in my proposal, too, this is it's not a personal thing. I'm not saying I don't want to work for a particular person, um, but role-wise, this is what makes sense. Um, and he did ask me to write out what my vision was for the organization. So I said, this is my vision. Um, this is where I should be. This is where everybody else should be. This is where the security um, office, we didn't have a security office per se. We just had a security team. So I established an information security office for the whole clinical center and I had several, uh, I did my homework, you know, I looked, I did all my research and had all of that backing me up. So it's not that I was asking for something that was so far out of the ballpark that nobody's ever heard of this phenomenon. And, and now what's your day to day like? Are, are you responsible for all the back office stuff? Are you writing policy? Are you strategic? Are you operational? Are you both? Pretty much everything you said. <laughs> um, so I have expanded my team as well, which which required, you know, Many more proposals and many more asks, <laughs> um, but I, I really honestly do feel that you have to ask for what you want. You can't just be satisfied and just assume that people know the amount of work or the or what you need. And I, I do believe if you don't ask for what you need, you're not going to get it. Versus if you do ask for what you need, 
you may still not get it, but at least you know you you, you put it out there, um, and it's always on somebody's mind that you you asked for something. So just give me a quick sense of uh, a CISO at a biomedical research facility at a hospital. What, what's a day in a day? Out? Are you are you worried about hacks of pacemakers and systems? Are you worried about network security? I, I know all of the above, but but give me what's a typical day for you. Since we have to work with doctors, nurses, scientists, researchers, for me, it's the it's the value that security is bringing to their jobs, where I feel that we that that have been trying to um, put that value into everyone's minds, so that security isn't regarded as something that's that comes at the end or something that's a block from what they're doing. Um, so, like you said, for pacemakers, this is adding value. So their business, you know, a, a normal or organization that's not healthcare based, their business could be just you know creating systems, and making those operational. For us, it's life and death sometimes. So I've gotten feedback from doctors before, like, well, you're affecting patient care because uh, because of all the security stuff. And I now I'm able to kind of convince them that, well, yes, I am affecting patient care in a good way, because if I don't secure it, then somebody else is going to affect patient care in, in a not so good way. So, you you know, you benefit greatly from involving security from the beginning so that people do live and people and they're not able to Others aren't able to hack into um, devices that are in, inside them now. So it's n- no longer a question of, well, this um, particular IV machine is secured because it's in this room. Like, well, like you said, what, what about a pacemaker? That goes with the person. So you can't, you can't tell that person, well, you need to stay in this room because this room is lock, lockable for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's a very different dynamic. And just real briefly, how big of a staff do you have? And, and are you able to talk anything about a budget in terms of how much you guys spend on cybersecurity, generally speaking? So when I came, I had four people um, that worked for me. And now by the end of this year, I'll have about 14. So that's expanded greatly. Um, and I do thank my my CIO for that, for, for realizing the need for that and for and for giving me um, the opportunity to to present my cases. I, I do. I really value working for my CIO. You know, he's been amazing. And I've had other managers and other organizations that, you know, would say, well, this isn't my job. It's not my priority. You do your thing. Um, but at the, I think at the NIH Clinical Center, we've we've done a great job in making security well known out there. In terms of budget, it's definitely expanded a lot <laughs> in the last uh, seven years. Um, I don't really I didn't actually have a budget when I first came. Because um, the cybersecurity budget was part of IT, and there wasn't much other than just people's salaries, maybe a couple tools here and there. But right now, I'm not sure if I can give an exact number, but it's definitely in, in the millions, I would say. Just the tools themselves cost you know, a decent amount of money plus staff. And given just how, uh, I'll use the term popular, but maybe that's not the best word, how much focus there is on healthcare cybersecurity. It's no surprise that one, your budget's increased and two, your people have increased too. And your role has changed, I'm sure. The the CISO you were or the information security officer you were when you got there is definitely not the same position that you have today. I, I, I'm only guessing. Yeah. Um, so healthcare security, I would actually say it's still in the infancy stages. I think it's getting more attention than it was before, but I do feel like it definitely it should get a lot more. Just because I've, I've, I've gotten contacts from other hospitals um, asking me to come work for them, and they've said, you're the first CISO that would be coming here. And sometimes I find that, oh, that, that's an awesome job. But then I'm like, wait, you don't have a CISO? Then how do you secure your whole hospital? And it's like, well, we just 
we just do what we think is, is right. But that's why we need somebody to tell us what to do. So that really does scare me. How can these major big hospital systems, they don't have scissors um, or official security officers. And they've actually said it's, it's well, it's, it's the sysadmin's job and um, duties as assigned, which I, yeah, which is a major concern for me. <laughs> yeah, you said scary. I think that's the best word. Yeah. Uh, Jothi, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump into the, the broader context of women and cybersecurity. My guest is Jothi Dugar, the National Institutes of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jothi Dugar, the National Institutes of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO where we're talking about not just cybersecurity, but really women in cybersecurity, which takes us down the first path of, from your perspective, as you look across the federal landscape, and I know you can't speak for every agency and you can't speak for every single part of the government, but as you look across the landscape of the federal agencies, what do you see? What's the state of women in cybersecurity for the federal government? Overall, just in general cybersecurity itself, there's the number hasn't changed in the last several years. It's been anywhere between 11 to 14 percent just worldwide percentage of women in cybersecurity. So in, in healthcare, it's even less. And in federal, it's even less than that. I would say maybe five to six percent. And healthcare security in the federal government, it's probably maybe one percent <laughs> from just based on uh, what I've done research on and, and what I've seen. So for, for me as, as a woman, um, when I was looking for role models in, in the space, um, just cybersecurity in general, whether it's federal government or private, there really wasn't any. So I, I felt that, you know, once I get to this position, that's that's what I want to be for for others that are aspiring, um, whether, whether, whether or not they're aspiring in cybersecurity in general, but at least in the technical um, IT space. Does it surprise you that the number of women in cyber let's say worldwide and or even just across the US is so small that it's it's you know under 20% or is there's a lot of demand but the supply hasn't caught up yet we know that but even worse the supply of women who are interested in, in pursuing this as a career hasn't caught up yet yeah so the supply and demand tactic is actually a catch 22 so we have such a shortage of cybersecurity staff just across the board worldwide however a lot of organizations, especially in the federal care space, really need people with experience to join their team. So it's really hard for somebody with a bachelor's or even a master's in cybersecurity just to uh, graduate and get a government uh, job at a, at, a, at a decent salary. So that's been a catch-22 where uh, I've had several students um, come work for me um, on a volunteer basis just to get that experience because they're not able to find um, other jobs, especially in the federal care um, space. I would guess that if you graduate with a, even a bachelor's degree, but definitely a master's degree of cybersecurity, you wouldn't be gobbled up right away from, from industry or from government? You would think. So I've had students graduate with a master of cybersecurity, look for two or even three years for a job, and they, they were contacting me just randomly, hey, we see that you're working in this space. Would you just give us an opportunity to come work for you? And especially young girls, because they look at me as, as a woman, but even young men, they're like, we just want to work. We just want to get some experience. So, so is this whole, and this maybe goes down a whole different path, but is the, I've always felt that this idea that the supply and demand issue of cybersecurity was a little bit of a fallacy. Maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but it seems like there's always a need for people and they always talk about how you know China or North Korea or South Korea are graduating so many more people in this field in the U.S. 
But then at the same time, where's all the development doing? Where's all the R&D doing? Where's all the, you know, there's, they, they have people from China or people from South Korea coming here to, to work and go to school. So is there really that much of a deficit or is it just a, again, maybe I'm getting in trouble myself here, but maybe it's just a nice talking point to get more people involved, to, to ramp up the spending, to get the government involved. Do you, do you actually see the deficit? Um, maybe that's a better question for you. So I work for federal government. There's always a deficit. There's always. <laughs> but yeah, to your point, I do believe there is a deficit, but I don't believe we're doing the right things to fill that deficit. Um, so we're we're saying there's a deficit, and I really don't see much action out uh, around that. Um, I know it's easier to fill cybersecurity positions per se because um, we can make them direct hires, but I really, I, it's still not that easy for me to, to, I can't just go to my boss and say, hey, I need 10 more people um, and just make that happen. Because um, when there's a federal freeze, there's still a freeze. Um, and so you still have to go through this whole process of, of getting people on board. Um, but like I said, it, you know, I don't think everyone's looking at all the avenues. We, we have something called special volunteers at the NIH. We have volunteer positions. We have intern positions. And that's really the way for students to really get into the cybersecurity field and get their expertise or experience before they even graduate. Because if companies aren't giving them offers and federal government isn't giving them paid offers, then this is the only way they can get that experience is, is to come in um, through, through that aspect. Let's narrow this down to women in cybersecurity and getting teenagers, getting elementary school, middle school students involved and even college students involved. Uh, I, I can speak from my personal experience, and, and if my daughter's listening, she's probably cringing at this moment, but she's has math skills out the wazoo. I th we think it skipped a generation because my wife and I are not the best in math, hence why I am a writer. But uh, she has crazy math skills, and uh, you know, I tried to get her into like CSI cyber you know, on TV, and she had no no interest in cyber, no interest in, in IT in, that, in general anyways. But what is it do you think that – how do we get more women, more girls interested? It's actually the mindset. Please don't show her the CSI cyber. Anything you watch on TV is probably not the, the, doing you any justice when it comes to security. You mean you, mean you don't solve all your problems in one hour? <laughs> <laughs> oh my, we got hacked quickly. <laughs> one hour later, it's solved. Yeah, and that's actually partly the problem because they see these things on TV and they see a hacker with a hoodie and then they see all these people with, you know – these holograms on, on in space and trying to you know press buttons and they're catching a guy in in Afghanistan who's doing something here. I'm like, yes, that's all cool stuff, but it's actually setting them up for failure because when when I get interns coming to work for me, that's what they're expecting to see. And then you're giving them some sort of paper drill like, hey, fill out this FISMA documentation, and they're like, what? <laughs> what is this? Like, where? Where's Where's my next Snowden type of thing? I'm like, no, no, Snowden worked his way. <laughs> you know, he was a smart guy, but he, you know, he worked his way to get where he was. Um, whether he did the right thing or not, it's a whole different story. Uh, um, that's a whole yeah, different yeah, discussion. Yeah. Exactly. Let's not go there. <laughs> but for students, like, going back to your question, so I've been giving talks at elementary schools, even at that level. I started at high schools before, um, and I actually noticed it needs to go way down to the elementary school level. So I have uh, a daughter in elementary school as well. And so instead of buying her books on princesses and um, fairy tales, which is, it's nice to, to live in that world as well, but they also need to know that there's other sides of things. So I actually, as a mom and as a cybersecurity professional, I don't push her into doing the same things that her other friends are doing. Um, so maybe having science-oriented parties um, instead of, oh, let's all just go 
you know, through a swimming pool or just go have a princess party and just getting her to just start thinking a little differently, like how to solve problems. So they might not need to be interested in, in math or cybersecurity, but just to get them to start thinking differently, take risks and not be afraid of failing. Um, I think that's at least setting them in the right right direction. The other comment you made was we're saying there's a deficit, but there's not enough action around it. What's happening internal to the federal government where you see some either some best practices that should be replicated or some areas where you've seen, whether through NIH or through the government, that maybe you're going a little bit of a head scratcher, like, why are we doing that again? What stands out to you on either side of the spectrum? As government, when you go to job fairs, they don't really ask the cybersecurity folks, do you want to participate in this job fair to, to get people um, on your team or just in, in your organization? Um, they usually take the HR person who probably has nothing to do with cybersecurity um, or just uh, other officials that so for an age they might take people in the, the research space. So they're going to try to find people to come into research for an age. But it really does require um, the actual cybersecurity folks to go to job fairs to look for the right type of people and also go to schools, like I said, to to get that interest from um, from a young age onwards, go to women's seminars and talk about just technical leadership, cybersecurity, and the whole psychology behind that to them. Just getting the word out there. We need more women to do that because if, if you have a male that's going out there and then asking for more females in that industry, they're just going to look at that male person and say, okay, well, where are they? So they, they like to see or you, you, you tend to see what, what you want to see. So I think as women, you want to see other women out there. As uh, students, you want to see other students that have taken that route and succeeded. Um, so that's why I try to bring in, if, if there's a student out there that wants a cybersecurity role um, and they are hardworking, they're willing to do what it takes to, to get there, that's what I'm looking for. So they don't need to be cybersecurity experts before they come to me. I'd, I would rather actually have, I would prefer people not be an expertise, uh, an expert in what they're doing, because it's actually easier to train them that way. So they don't have set opinions on on things. That's so true. It's it's so so many people want all this experience, but what you're saying, and this is, I, I would I'm going to infer this based on your background. You want someone who can think. Hey, can you think, you know, logically and analytically to solve problems? I can teach you the cybersecurity side. I can teach you which port to close. I can tell you what what an attack or or, or DDoS attack looks like. But can you think analytically to fix it, to how to solve it, so it doesn't happen again? Do, do I have yeah, that? And can you think outside of the box? Um, oh, that box. We all yeah. have to. We have to. Or outside out of, the, of box. the Pentagon. The Pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's actually a saying in, in one of the uh, lectures I went to where they said, "Great minds think." alike, but I actually believe great minds think differently. Because um, when you have five people in the room and they're all thinking the same, it's not really going to be a great mind. You're just all going to be thinking the same thing. Versus if you have people with different varieties, different diversities, different cultures, different age groups, different genders, then you're all bringing different perspectives to that mix. And there's no way you're, you're going to come out of that mix in a in a lower spot than you were if you had, everybody looked the same and everybody thought the same. Uh, Jyothi, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can talk a little bit more about women in cybersecurity in the federal government. My, my guest is Jyothi Dugar, the National Institutes of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller. My guest is Jyothi Dugar, the National Institute of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. 
This is a special edition of Ask the CIO. We're talking about women in cybersecurity. And Jyothi, one of the things we were talking about in the last segment was getting more women attracted, getting more young girls attracted into the cybersecurity field, or at least the math, science, STEM field. What are you guys doing specifically at NIH to address this, this again, supply-demand issue? NIH as a whole, especially the clinical center, they actually have a program called the, the Diversity of Science. So they're actually taking a, a pretty deep look at all the diversity or the lack of diversity we have in the healthcare space and in science in general. And they, they have a whole program out there that's, that they go to different departments within the NIH, just making sure that everybody understands why diversity matters, capitalizing on the opportunity um, and what diversity brings to the table, um, and specifically in healthcare and the science space. Um, you know, just the fact that it brings more excellence, more creativity, more innovation, um, broadens the scope of inquiry, um, and just the, the, the general positive in, impact it has on the workforce um, and ensuring fairness. Because when you bring in cognitive diversity to the team, which is the diversity of thought, it does increase the creativity of the team, the novel information, and just the different perspectives from from various people. So like I said before, the, the previous phenomenon used to be um, like minds think alike, but now it's, it's starting to become like minds think differently. So uh, partnering with, with that program, so I've been more focused on bringing diversity to the cybersecurity world at the Clinical Center and NIH in general. So part of what I'm doing is partnering with this program, but also reaching out to various outreach type of programs where students come to the NIH to learn about careers within the NIH. And many people don't even realize that cybersecurity and healthcare is a thing. So they come in wanting to talk to researchers or scientists or doctors or nurses on the, um, the most fascinating biomedical research out there, you know, cures for cancer or um, other diseases. Um, and then they and then they meet me and they're like, oh, what do you do? Are you a doctor? I'm like, nope, I'm a chief information security officer. And they're like, what's that? Um, so then that's how we start talking. And it's, it's really fascinating because these are smart students. They want to do the right thing for the world. And they're being brought up really well by their by their parents just for being in this program and just being curious. And they ask very tough questions about, OK, and the recent question I had from a student was, Okay, so my mom goes to various different doctors and her electronic health record is at multiple different places. So how are you, as, a, as one of the CISOs um, at the NIH, protecting her electronic health record? Which I thought that, that question just blew my mind. Like, how do you even know what an electronic health record is? You're 12. <laughs> so just reaching out to different outreach programs for students, um, reaching out to the cybersecurity community as a whole, as well as various organizations that have that are women focused in IT or women just wondering like what what they should do I reached out to several moms there's a mom group in our community and these are moms that were stay-at-home moms for several years taking care of their kids and then now they want to come back into the job world and it's actually hard for them because they've been so out of it for several years now that they they want to come back into it and they see all these terms being th thrown out there now for like cybersecurity and you should get into this field, you should get into that field. And they come to me like, well, hey, we, hey, cybersecurity looks really cool. How do I get into that? And it's hard for me to tell them like, well, you've been out of it for 10 years. So you really need to be clued into IT in general and just the tools out there in general and the software out there in general. But getting back into security is going to be 
a little bit on on on, on the harder path, but um, but I've been trying to coach them into okay, here's some courses you can take, here's some knowledge you, you should have, just do more research, increase your way of cognitive thinking in, in this way or that way. Is there an example maybe that stands out to you from your own staff that where diversity of thought made a difference? Can, can you point to something where you can say, because we had someone who's African-American or someone who was from you know uh, the Middle East and someone from South America, that helped solve a problem? So we've had international students as well as employees um, come work for me because um, that's one of the things I do look for if they're qualified and they bring a totally different perspective. So some of the things we ask for even in the interviews, how would you solve this problem? And we give them a hypothetical situation that might have even happened to us. And it'd be interesting. It was interesting to see how they respond to that. So if they give just a standard textbook language, well, this is how we would put this tool in place or that tool in place. We're like, okay, you know, you're kind of just reading, reading the books and, and giving us an answer. But I've actually hired people that gave me a totally different answer that I would have been like, oh, I didn't even think about it in, in that aspect. Um, a lot of it involved, um, I think I mentioned this before, just the psychology. So, I, so one of the questions I do ask everyone that I interview is, okay, so if you had to go to a doctor and explain cybersecurity to them, what would you say? Um, or if you had to explain why this control has to be in place or why you don't have controls in place, how would you uh, explain to them what a control is and why is it important? Um, and just kind of seeing the answers that they give. You're very nice to say if you go to the doctor. I was thought you were going to say if you go to the auditors and how do you explain why you don't have a control in place? Well, that's a different discussion. One of the things that you brought up was, was was trying to reach out to different groups. Are you seeing that with other agencies? Are you working with other women in cybersecurity in the federal government to expand that that aperture, if you will, of, of reaching out to women and girls? Yes. So the more conferences that I speak at, I end up uh, expanding my network um, specifically with, with other women in, in the federal government space. They're either in cybersecurity or or even just a a high level position within um, a, a technical world. Um, I don't I think that's even um, far and few as well. So just me. So when I meet someone, I don't let them go. <laughs> so if you ever meet me, you know, you, you know, I'm going to be on your case because because it does take a, a village, um, you know, not just to raise a child, but to get your word out there to cause a ripple effect. Because if it's one person can change the world, but it's, it's helpful to have uh, more people that, that share your passion. Uh, I want to tag back to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation, where when I asked you how you got into cybersecurity and how you became the CISO, you said you asked for it. And, and one of the things that you mentioned, the difference between maybe men and women is, and, and generally speaking, obviously not with everybody, but men are more, if you will, readily go after something and maybe women are more readily to hang back to a certain extent. And, and again, we don't want to generalize too much, but one of the th issues I think that, that has emerged is this idea, well, if, if I'm a man and I fail in, in cybersecurity or at IT or some, it's, it's, well, you know, let's move on. Let's keep going. Well, a woman has a more, is there a fear of failure? Is that something that is, is part of maybe why more women don't go into cybersecurity because if you get it right, nobody knows about it. But if, if you get it wrong, oh boy, do they know about it? Yes. So as for females, there's a there is a, a fear of of fear. So I don't know how else to put it. So even as a young young child, girls are taught, okay, 
you jumped off the couch and you fell down and you hurt your arm. Don't ever do that again. Um, as a boy, oh, hey, you know, you just hurt your arm. So next time, you know, try to not hurt anything, but, you know, try it again. Go ahead. You know, do it again. Do it again. And they're taught at a very young age to just go out there, take risks. And it's OK if you feel because there's no such thing as failure for, for boys. It's like, OK, maybe you did it wrong this time, but, you know, just do it differently next time. For girls, it's like you got some small thing wrong. OK, that's it. You know, this is not for you. It's It's almost like you know as a baby hey you you try to walk and then you fell down now walking is not for you maybe you should stick with crawling <laughs> and that kind of that continues as their girls as their young women um and and as they mature as as um, older women as well that the same mindset kind of continues where hey i try to do something or i try to go along this path and maybe it didn't work the way that you thought it would okay that's not the path for me i, I am going to go this other path instead how do you break that culture of fear how, how do you change that mindset i think it starts with a very young age having women in power or in positions like the one i'm in to really teach your own kids as well as reach out and, and try to mentor or coach other kids as well that it's okay to take risks and you don't have to follow the path just because all your friends want to be princesses and, and fairies doesn't mean that that's the right path for you and you should think outside the box or the circle or the or the pentagon um and it's okay and i teach my daughters that all the time you you tried something and i wouldn't even call it failure okay now you know 20 different ways how you know uh not to do this. Uh, so you just have to find that one way how to do it right. Uh, Jyoti, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can uh, talk maybe more specifics about NIH and some of your priorities as CISO. My guest is Jyoti Dugar, the National Institutes of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller, your host. My guest is Jyothi Dugar, the National Institute of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. Jyothi, we spent most of the show talking about getting more women attracted to cybersecurity, getting more women and a more diverse set of uh, cybersecurity workers. Let's focus now on what you do at the NIH's Clinical Center. We talked a little bit about your role as CISO, but what are some of your priorities? What are some of the programs and projects you're working on? So as a healthcare organization and also federal government, we run the gamut of healthcare security, as well as just normal federal uh, government uh, cybersecurity. So one of our primary concerns right now is medical device security um, and just making sure that all of our medical devices are accounted for, having a good asset uh, inventory of them, and really trying to figure out how each of them work and how the best way to secure them, whether it's land segmentation. Because most of these medical devices are so fragile, uh, they really can't be scanned the way the way that normal systems can be scanned or patched, you know, because uh, we run into FDA concerns and certification concerns. So just trying to figure out what can we do with these to secure them the best way possible, um, segregate them from the network and also make sure that um, they're not accessible from from the outside. Medical device security is something that's gotten a lot of attention recently. And, and this leads us down the path of the IoT or instead of ITOT, right? There's all these new terms that we have to learn. Talk a little bit about how you are addressing this this internet of things and, and cybersecurity, because you're right. As you said, the devices can be so fragile that it's not a typical, okay, it's gonna connect to the internet and then you can just send a patch and it's good to go. How are you dealing with this? Like, what's the, what's the program? So IOT is just a whole different beast on its own. But some of the challenges we have with that is when you're part of the federal government, you, you're under FISMA policies, and FISMA policies apply to systems. So what classifies as a system? 
we just it, that that whole term these days uh, is very confusing because normally uh, several years ago system would be okay you have a server your workstation you have something connected to that you have an, you uh, have an application and that qualifies uh, as being a system now if we just have a bluetooth headset that's transmitting some radio waves is that a system um, or if you have an iv pump is that a system um, so just trying to figure out what is in the boundary of a system and then what sort of security do we need to put uh, around that sometimes is a, is a big challenge. But even if an IV pump is not a system, you still have to secure it if, if it's connected somehow to the internet or the Wi-Fi network because it's sending data to a doctor's or a nurse's computer or tablet. So, so even w whether let's put FISMA to the side, you still have to figure out the security side of it. Yes. So when you say cybersecurity in a federal government space, you have security operations, which is actually securing the devices. And then you have the compliance side, which is all the FISMA regulations. So usually both sides work together. But since most of the government uh, cybersecurity space lacks funding or resources, the FISMA side takes up a lot more time. Um, do, do you spend time also worrying about, for instance, doctors and nurses and other healthcare practitioners and, and their laptops and their tablets and, and collecting personal data and, and electronic health records? Where's your role to help them ensure that they're security? Because doctors are known for saying, well, I want that app. I'll just put it on. And you have to have some guardrails to say, OK, if, if you go outside my guardrails, you're going to crash. The NIH, um, and specifically the clinical center, I do feel that like we do a fairly good job of protecting and enforcing our own policies. So I create uh, policies for the clinical center's security um, and ma making sure that it is in, uh, in compliance with NIH policies as well as other federal regulations. So we have a whole security review of any procurement that comes through uh, for the clinical center. Um, so anything that's re uh, even remotely could be IT which includes uh, external hard drives or anything that has an IP address um, or even doesn't have an IP address, we it goes through my office. Um, so we, at that point, we include all the security clauses within the contract for that vendor. And then when, when, when we actually purchase a, a, uh, equipment or a medical device or any sort of systems, before that system gets implemented, we again have somebody from my team that's involved in that project, making sure all the security requirements are taken care of, um, whether it's considered a system or not, like you said, if it's a system that's going into or if it's anything going into the clinical center, we actually do a fairly good job in making sure security is involved. Um, we go over the requirements before the the system is, is installed. What about the apps, right? Right now I can go to iTunes or Google Play and download something and that could open up a hole in the security fabric. Do you, what, how do you deal with that with doctors and nurses and, and healthcare practitioners? Backing off of that question and your previous question, so we have something called Mobile Iron, which is what we use for mobile device management. Well, nobody, let alone doctors or nurses, nobody can bring in their own personal devices and connect to our network. And if they do bring in a personal device and they have to go through a whole BYOD program, get approval, and then get a uh, mobile device management solution on their personal devices to get um, email access or whatever else they want to access. Um, the same thing goes with... Um, um, iPads or, or any sort of application. So if they wanted to download something on their personal phone, um, that's up to them. But then they can't use their personal phone to access our network unless they get the mobile device management on there. We talked about medical devices quite a bit. And then there's the other side, right? It's the network side. NIH is part of HHS. HHS is implementing the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. There's Einstein. There's a whole bunch of federal programs. Does that kind of flow down to your role as CISO, or is that being done at the bigger HHS level? So both. We inherit whatever HHS decides to give 
NIH and whatever the NIH decides to give to their institutes. And sometimes we buy our own tools or our own software as well. So if we see that something is not part of the DHS CDM efforts, like Silence, we, we use Silence and, and other tools as well for various purposes. So if we see that it's not part of CDM, but it is something that we need immediately or in the near future, we get it um, ourselves. The bigger piece of this, and we talked a little bit about the people side, right? The, the attracting women and, and other uh, diversity into the cybersecurity world. But you also have to worry about from a system's role of training the regular everyday worker, everyone from the, the person who sweeps the floor to serves food, to the doctors, to the nurses, to the researchers, to the your you know the head of NIH, you know Francis Collins. How are you addressing the kind of training of the workforce from a, from a CISO's perspective? So the NIH as a whole has security awareness courses. That's only once a year, and I know everyone just presses next and you know just to get the certificates and so I get off their back. <laughs> um, but in addition to that, we actually go out to different departments, um, work with, let's say, uh, the nursing department. We go there, green savers that have security uh, that built in sort of screen savers so they see it on a daily basis, kind of as reminders, like, hey, these are different things that you would look for in a phishing email. This is what you should and shouldn't do. Don't email the uh, phishing emails to me <laughs> um, or forward it to anybody else. Just so they see it on a constant basis. We have posters that are spread out and, and put on the walls um, everywhere in the clinical areas, just so security is on their mind on a, on a daily basis. Do you get a sense, given the breaches we've seen both in the federal government but also in the private sector, that people are more aware of cybersecurity and more aware of, hey, we are being attacked with these types of phishing emails because there's no longer the Nigerian prince that if you send me you know, $10,000, I'll send you $10 million. Those have really gone away, but they're really much more sophisticated phishing attacks and, and spear phishing. Yes. So before I would say they, uh, you know, we probably had an 80% click rate. So now um, I can't say for sure how, how bad the click rate is, but I know for sure our our actual compromises has have, have gone down tremendously. One, um, we have the tools. So it's it's a people process technology thing. So we, we have the right tools in place that would catch um, executions of certain malware. We have the people um, in place and my team that, that that's there to kind of monitor these uh, the tools and just general things that are going on. And then it's also the training of uh, the, the rest of the staff, like you said. As the CISO of NIH's clinical center, what's your biggest challenge? Like when we talk about what keeps you awake at night beyond, you know, the three kids you have, <laughs> what else keeps you awake from a work perspective? In general, the just the possibility of what could happen um, and I know there's a famous saying out there, it's not an if it could happen, it's when it could happen. So just trying to uh, keep on top of that and doing the best we can, making sure that security is on everyone's minds. And I do feel it is now. It's on leadership's minds. It's on the general staff's mind. Um, it's probably on everybody's mind too much to, to the point of uh, I've had people come to me with their boss's uh, email. Hey, is this phishing that they're telling me to do something like, no, this is not phishing your boss. This is your boss and you should do what he says. Um, <laughs> uh, but at least they're coming to you, right? Yes. I mean, if they were just, well, I'll just I'll just send them the, that PDF because he asked for it. And then you go, oh, no, that was a. Yeah, email. and they're not afraid to contact me anymore. Before they thought if they heard from me, then it's a bad thing. And I, and I think we've done a fairly good job in changing the perspective on, on people too. Like, hey, if security calls you, we're just trying to help. We're not trying to say, hey, you did something wrong and I'm going to be in trouble. Excellent, excellent advice. And, and Jothi, this was just a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we, just, we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guest, Jothi Dugar, the National Institute of Health's Clinical Center's Chief Information Security Officer. Jothi, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. This has been great. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 